Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Oncology Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Topping. Today's episode features expert answers to healthcare provider questions surrounding androgen deprivation therapy for prostate cancer. This episode is part of a larger educational program titled Advances in Prostate Cancer, Androgen Deprivation Therapy Across the Disease Continuum. During this podcast, Dr. Daniel Lin from the University of Washington in Seattle, Washington, Dr. Alicia Morgans from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, Massachusetts, and Dr. David Penson from the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee, discuss important topics, including how to select between GnRH agonists and antagonists for initial ADT, how androgen receptor inhibitors should be incorporated into treatment paradigms for non-metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer and metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, and how patients with prostate cancer and bone density issues should be managed. Please visit the show notes for this episode for a link to the complete program, including downloadable slide sets, expert commentaries, and an on-demand webcast from a live CCO event. Now let's get started and hear what the faculty have to say on these important topics. I think that we should understand uh, how to select, how to ablate the androgen axis, so how to, how to do androgen deprivation therapy. For many, many years, it was it was GnHRH agonists, and now there's a wealth of antagonists that are now available. And I think we can just start out with what what are those key considerations to choosing uh, which to use? And that would be either an agonist such as luprolide uh, or an antagonist, and they're listed there like Degarelux or Reluglex uh, for patients requiring ADT. What about more recent trial? And this is the HERO data. Now, this is uh, called Reluglex. This is also another GnHRH antagonist. Importantly, it is oral. It's a Q-day formulation. And this is another trial. It was a phase three trial. Again, comparing a depot formulation of lupulide versus is a PO formulation of relugalix. With regards to efficacy, with sustained castration rate after that 28 days, there did appear to be certainly non-inferiority with the oral formulation versus lupulide. And then there was some superiority, although I would argue how much superiority is there, 89 versus 96, 97 uh, percent. Is that clinically meaningful? And then as far as the testosterone levels, you can see very similar to Degarelix. The oral formulation had a very quick and precipitous decline in the testosterone uh, almost immediately as compared to the luprolide. But after 28 days, it did seem to be nearly normal or, or nearly the same. With regards to safety, I think I can cut cut down just the bottom line down there. If you look at any AEs, it's it's very similar. But if you look down at those patients for a major adverse cardiac event, so MACE is major, major adverse cardiovascular event, between the two being the oral reluglix versus the, the Lupron, the uh, Lupron did appear to have a statistically significantly increased uh, number of MACE events particularly in those patients who had a history of MACE. ADT uh, really forms the backbone of therapy. We know that. There are issues with agonists versus antagonists, particularly, I think, in those patients who have underlying cardiovascular disease. At least that's what the data seem to suggest. Um, and I think we should take that into consideration. I'm going to talk about advances in non-metastatic cancer-resistant prostate cancer. I think it's a very interesting topic. Uh, a lot of news here, a lot of important trials as of late. The three uh, next-generation androgen androgen receptor inhibitors are apalutamide, enzalutamide, and darolutamide. I want to say up front that I think all three are good drugs and they're all effective. We're going to talk about some of the, the differences, 
But I want you to note right off the bat that APA and ENZA, and I hope it's okay if I sort of shorten it to APA, ENZA, and Darrow, uh, just so I don't get a mouthful. APA and ENZA have very similar structures. And their side effect profiles, while they're not exactly the same, they do have some overlap. Darolutamide, on the other hand, is structurally distinct from, uh, distinct from APA and ENZA, and it's characterized by low blood-brain barrier penetration and may have improved tolerability. And as someone who's used uh, all three of these drugs, and I think others on this uh, conference have as well, I think that's fairly true. You do see a different uh, set of side effects with darolutamide and, frankly, less. These are the three registration trials uh, for these drugs in non-metastatic CRPC, and the, frankly, they're very similar in design. And patients were randomized either to get apalutamide in Spartan, enzalutamide in Prosper, or darolutamide in Aramis. In the other arm, it was placebo. And the primary endpoint was metastatic free survival. And I want to caution you against trying to compare one study versus the other. These are not head-to-head comparisons. And those subtle differences make it, I don't want to say impossible, but make it very difficult to compare the studies against one another. But all three studies show that these drugs uh, are effective. If you look at Spartan, which is the apalutamide study, uh, there is a significantly a statistically significant advantage from metastatic free survival. Uh, the median metastatic free survival was 40.5 versus 16.2 months. There's a 72% reduction of distant progression or death and a 24-month additional MFS benefit. PROSPER, similar findings, has a ratio of 0.29, highly statistically significant. Again, the median uh, metastatic free survival, uh, similar, 36.6 versus 14.7 months. And again, similar uh, uh, reduction in distant progression or death and uh, additional MFS benefit. Aramis, the darolutamide study, a little bit different, but again, you cannot compare one to the other. It's clear that darolutamide is an effective agent, uh, highly st- statistically significant. The median metastatic free survival was 40.4 versus 18.4 months, 59% reduction of distant progression, 22-month additional MFS benefit. These drugs work. It's that simple. They all significantly improved overall survival versus placebo. And when you look at AES leading to uh, study uh, drug discontinuation, for the most part, it's a rare event that patients stop the drugs. Uh, it's a little less likely in with darolutamide, but the fact of the matter is these drugs are fairly well tolerated, although there, there are some differences. Some patients with non-metastatic CRPC will benefit from novel androgen receptor inhibitors. Those who have a PSA doubling time of less than 10 months are the ones who are most likely to benefit. So I think that's the tool you want to use. Uh, let's talk a little bit about metastatic hormone-sensitive disease. Is ADT alone enough? Treatment intensification with ADT plus either abiraterone, apalutamide, enzalutamide, or docetaxel is really the new standard of care for metastatic hormone-sensitive disease. We need to change our practices and come up to speed. It's really not the standard of care for the vast majority of men. Treatment intensification is preferred regardless of how fast or how far the PSA falls. Um, And quality of life and patient preferences should be considered when choosing those treatments. Shared decision-making can help match a patient with the right treatment for him. If you know somebody has uh, a bone density issue and you need to start them on some deprivation therapy, Besides, I mean, you know this by because you talked about getting a DEXA scan and so forth. You're going to start them on perhaps the easy oral agents, but is there anything else that you do in that situation? You know, oral bisphosphonates work pretty well, and we rarely use them as urologists. Uh, I really do try to put all my patients on vitamin D. You know, it, it's it's not super sexy, and as urologists, we forget about it. But I think it's worth doing. 
you know, you mentioned patients who we know are at risk. The only way you know they're at risk is to get a, either they've had a history of it and they've had a fracture or you've gotten a bone scan. So I think we really need to get in the habit of getting a bone a DEXA scan, when I say bone scan, when we start a patient on ADT. And if they're at increased risk for a fracture, I mean, there are some really, you know, denosumab is very well tolerated, easy to give in the urologist's office. Zoledronic acid is also uh, well tolerated, though if you don't have infusion capabilities, you may not be able to give it. But, you know, I, I'm giving these drugs in patients who have increased risk by the FRAX calculator. And what I will do is I will do a DEXA scan if they've been on ADT for a year. And if things have gotten worse, then I'll put them on denosumab then. I don't use calcium routinely, but if you're going to put some on denosumab or zoledronic acid, you have to give it to them. The other thing um, that, so, you know, the, I'm sort of dancing around this a little bit. We don't think about oral bisphosphonates, um, but there are things you could easily put patients on and they do very well with it. Getting these patients to exercise is a really good thing. And there's a lot of literature out there that shows it helps with bone density and it may also help with their outlook and their mental health as well, their quality of life. So, so I do try to push them to sort of do uh, cardiovascular exercise as well. That's great. And then Alicia, there's, there's a question, I, I believe it was for you mainly, which is when you're presented with a patient with hypertension and diabetes, perhaps pretty serious on both counts, and that's pretty common in, in our patients that we see, and you're trying to consider combo therapy, and obviously the issues with the prednisone or the issue with abiraterone and so forth. I mean, how do you uh, navigate that path? And are there some issues that surround that with these comorbidities? How do you manage that? Absolutely. And I think that's a great question. And hopefully, as many of us as possible actually have partners in primary care, in cardiology or cardio-oncology or endocrine if the patient has really bad diabetes, but these are absolutely considerations. So for patients who have extremely brittle and uncontrolled diabetes, I would probably avoid abiraterone and prednisone, but that is a rare patient. Most patients with diabetes actually have pretty minimal effect on the, their blood glucose levels with the hormone-sensitive dosing of prednisone, which is just five milligrams once a day. And usually that's not so disruptive. Certainly, if it is, you can use one of the other uh, oral AR antagonists. So you've got Enza and APA as options. If a patient has pretty terribly controlled blood pressure, I actually will take the first few months of when I've started ADT before I start my partner drug and try to work with the patient and his primary care or cardiologist to get that blood pressure under control. Because patients, when, when you really tell them, or at least when I, in my experience, when I've told them, hey, you need this partner drug, but then we have a follow-up visit or even two where I say, gosh, your, your blood pressure systolic is in the 180s. I'm not able to safely give you another medicine until you get that under control. Most guys have been motivated enough to engage with primary care and, and do, do something to get that under control. And zalutamide can actually be associated with something called press, which of course is very high blood pressure and not something you want to cause in your patient. And abiraterone as well can, because of excess mineralocorticoid effects sometimes, can also cause hypertension. So these are things that we want to try to control on the front end. And in all of these studies, the partner drug was added any time in the first basically one to three, four months. So you do have a couple months when patients might just be on ADT to kind of get them tuned up before you add the next one. Great. And maybe on and for, for both of you, there was a there was a question that was regarding an antagonist, the question of somebody that 
had prior treatment, but had recurrence, was put on an antagonist. In this case, it was the oral relugalix compound, and then started having what appears to be maybe early CRPC, and there's going to be an addition of an agent, obviously, as for non-metastatic CRPC. But this is in the setting of an antagonist. Do you keep the antagonist? I don't know whether either of you are using the antagonist, but you are you been keeping the antagonist going and adding the agent? Are you switching to an agonist, adding the agent? How do you all how have you all handled that? I'm going to defer to Dr. Morgan's on this one. I don't have a, you know, the new oral agent, I don't have a lot of experience with. I've had a few patients who are on Dagorelix um, and have progressed. And frankly, I've just left them on the Dagorelix. Maybe that's a mistake. And yes, there's the studies are all with GNRH agonists, but I, I feel like the mechanism of action is the same. So even with the oral agents, uh, I'm inclined to leave them on that, although perhaps we don't have studies showing it works. Alicia, um, you probably have a lot more experience with this than I do at this point. Well, nobody's got a ton of experience with Relagolix, at least those who weren't necessarily in the trial. But um, there is definitely safety data, and there have been subsequent publications, uh, abstracts, uh, GUASCO, I think, by Andy Armstrong and some others, that looked at combinations of Relagolix and the other agents. And so the safety profile seems to be defined. Given that, I think it's perfectly reasonable to keep a patient who's doing well on that drug. And I would also say that, you know, adding the Enza, adding the Abbey, whatever it is that we're adding for MCRPC, and those are our options. Um, we know, as, as Dr. Penson demonstrated in, in his slides, that if a patient already has cardiovascular comorbidities, those patients may actually be at an elevated risk for mortality if we're adding these drugs, which we know will be good for their prostate cancer control, but may push them over the edge in terms of their comorbidities. So, if the relagolix is being used, patients tolerating it, and particularly if it's on for a cardiovascular type reason, I would keep them on that drug and I would just add my additional agent on. Yeah. I mean, on a personal reflection, I've seen, and, and again, this is more for people at my shop, like, you know, our friends Evan Yu and uh, Mike Schweizer and the, the, that, that group who have been in large part, not completely, but in large part transitioning to an agonist after a while, and maybe an initial antagonist to get their castration uh, under control very quickly. And then and then some patients, because of the formulation or every three months or something like that, have chosen to go on a longer depot formulation as opposed to antagonist depot. And then they transition to that by the time they need something else. But that's just sort of, sort of on a personal reflection. Let's talk about imaging. You know, this whole idea of are we turning these non-metastatic patients metastatic? If we do that on imaging, do we treat them like metastatic CRPC because the trials only use conventional imaging? You know what I mean? I've, I've had patients say, hey, now look, this, there are METs here now. Should we treat them that way? Even in the hormone-sensitive space, like high-risk prostate cancer, everything's negative. Oh, there's a couple METs by PSMA. Do we treat them like a metastatic patient? Do we, do we demand an MRI to show that? What have you done? Both of you. I mean, maybe Dave, talk about you know in the in the naive setting, and then and then maybe Alicia yeah. in the and yeah. non so so you know I have to say this is going to be really challenging because a lot of our existing evidence is going to be maybe a little less generalizable now. So we're all sort of you know groping in the dark with this. It's really interesting in the sort of biochemical recurrence setting, castrate sensitive disease after say a prostatectomy, patients a rising PSA. You know, you'll get a bone scan, you'll get, maybe you'll get a CT, you won't see anything, and then you'll get 
up to now, it's been a, a, fluci a flucyclovine scan. Uh, amazing. I finally learned how to pronounce that. Now we're moving on, right? <laughs> and it shows something. And suddenly I'm treating them like they're a uh, metastatic disease. It's changing the way I'm thinking about uh, local radiation. And it's changing uh, uh, what I'm doing for systemic therapy. Uh, is that the right thing to do? I don't know. And now, you know, we just got PSMA here at Vanderbilt and it's going to uh, move the needle even more. I don't know the right answer. I think if you see something on one of these novel imaging uh, studies, you're not going to be able to help but treat it as though there's systemic disease and, and you're going to be more aggressive. At least that's my sort of gestalt. Uh, and as we do more studies and we get more data, we'll probably have better guidance. Yeah, I think in the high-risk localized disease setting, uh, that's certainly what I'm seeing. I'm seeing patients, for example, high-risk localized disease, planning for surgery. Now with a single bone lesion, I've seen some proceed with surgery and then SBRT to the lesion, but I've seen more um, sort of convert to radiation and then add a systemic therapy with radiation and then also hit the MET, for example. So I think We'll continue to see, just on a side note related to that, you know, in Stampede, there was this high-risk radiation or high-risk localized disease, sort of locally advanced disease population treated with radiation. And we will have the two-year ABBY data for the addition of ABBY to that localized radiation in, in about a week as well. Um, but one comment on the non-metastatic CRPC setting, 98% or so of those patients who had negative conventional imaging in the MCRPC, NMCRPC setting, for example, in the, Spart the Spartan inclusion criteria, actually had positive PSMA PETs. That same population, though, had a survival benefit from the earlier intensification with one of the, the AR inhibitors in addition to the ADT. So regardless of what you want to call them, they're eligible for treatment per the criteria in those phase three randomized trials. I would intensify, I'd add an AR inhibitor, whichever one you want to choose from Dr. Penson's uh, section of this lecture and get them the MFS and OS benefit that they deserve. They are still technically non-metastatic CRPC by the criteria of the trials that led to the approvals. So I have one question for you, Dan. In that patient who has uh, low, you know, high-risk disease, and then they have, say, a PSMA scan, and they have, a, a say, a lesion. Are they now eligible for the SWOG study? What do we do with that now? Yeah, so the SWOG study criteria is if they have a lesion that's only on advanced imaging, it has to be biopsy proven. So it's a little bit problematic. I mean, if they're a bunch of retroperitoneal, uh, you know, a paraortic upper retroperitoneal that are very accessible to a needle, we've been needling them. If they're positive, we've been, we've been randomizing them. So that's really, that, yeah, it has to be biopsy proven. <laughs> it's tough in some cases when you're trying to biopsy a scapula or something, but <laughs> almost impossible, right? But um, listen, um, we have run out of time, but um, had a great time and I hope everybody found this instructive. I've been Thank you very much, Dr. Lin, Dr. Morgans, and Dr. Penson. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. As a reminder, to view the full program, Advances in Prostate Cancer, Androgen Deprivation Therapy Across the Disease Continuum, and to download slide sets associated with this discussion from the Clinical Care Options website, please click on the links in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening.